There's a lot in here about mission. There's a lot in here about the, the missionary life in the kingdom of God. In each interaction, there's like a little nugget about mission, right? The, the, first, the, the, the first interaction might say something a little bit about the mobility of the missionary, the open-handedness and simplicity of the missionary. The second interaction might say something about the life and death urgency of mission. Let the dead bury their own dead. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. It, it, the, the, king, the mission of the kingdom is so urgent, you don't have a moment to go and deal with this issue in your family. The third interaction might say something about the commitment in mission. There, there's no like in and out. There's no half in, half out. There's no like you kind of think about it for a little bit. You have seasons in, season out. It's just like all in commitment level of mission. But I, I just think there's, there's something a little bit further behind that. It's almost like we could, we could talk about the urgency of the, of the mission of God, the, the, the open-handedness and mobility of the, the mission of the kingdom of God, and we could even wrestle with that commitment of the mission of the kingdom of God, but none of that matters. Literally, none of that matters if Jesus is not the Lord of your life. None of it. And all of that kind of, kind of taking away from this passage assumes a position of, of we're totally surrendered to Jesus and, and Lord of Jesus' life, and, and he's the Lord of our life, and we're like, we're totally surrendered to whatever he says, and I actually think that's actually the problem here in this text, is each one of these interactions, these people, these disciples are saying, you're the Lord of my life, and what Jesus is saying is, am I really? Am I really? I think this is, in my opinion, I think it's one of the hardest words the disciples have heard so far in Luke. And as the close to our exploration of Jesus, I really just wanted to ask this morning one big question. If Jesus really is the Lord, what does that mean for you, for us, for all of us? There is constant conflict between missionary life and the ways that we understand identity, attachment, and our loyalty, our allegiances. And in these three interactions, Jesus confronts three what I'm going to call core human attachments. Three core human attachments. You see, anything that you attach your life to for meaning, anything that you attach your life to to derive meaning, those things that you think are going to give your life meaning, you then throw your allegiance and loyalty at them. It gives you meaning and you give it your loyalty. And the first interaction is about the existence and possession of a household. I'll follow you wherever you go. Lord, just tell me, I'm with you. I will follow you wherever you go. And instead of the reply being a place, a city, a location, the reply is, I've got nowhere to lay my head. Will you follow me, not to a destination, but will you follow me to nowhere? Will you follow me to the non-existence of household, the non-existence of root and place? I'm not just asking you to follow me to every destination. I'm actually, are you willing to follow me to nowhere? 
The promise is to deliver of the, of the household this. And we're, these three things, the household, uh, perceived, a perceived sense of righteousness, and, and the last one, this, this idea of family, we're going to walk through each one. These three things, these three, the, these three core human attachments that we, atta- we root our lives to, and they derive meaning for us, and then we give them our loyalty and allegiance. These three that they're, they're, we're going to talk about household, perceived sense of righteousness, and family. These are the core, th- the, the core human attachments of that first century ancient Near East world. And they're still important today. They're still incredibly important today. So they're still relevant for us, but I actually think there's a few more for us. But this first one, household, this, this first idea in the, the ancient Near East of household, what a, what a household, if you, if you attach your life to the idea of household, and that household in the ancient Near East world derives for you meaning. What that thing is promising you is, is safety, security, comfort is a big one. Comfort is a big one. But I would say wrapped up all together, if you take all these things all together, it is a search for home. That the household is to promise you somehow an end to your desire for home. The second interaction is about righteousness and responsibility. It comes off a little bit like family, right? It's, it's, it, 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 it is involving family, but actually what that disciple is asking is not let me be close to my family, let me maintain these relationships with my family, let me make sure that I have closure and tight-knit community with my uh, nuclear family. It, the request is let me fulfill the fifth commandment. Let me honor my father and mother because the, the apex example of what it means to honor your father and mother in that ancient Near East world for an, for an eldest son is to provide burial for your father and mother. I mean, you could be like a loving, like servant, provider, uh, totally obedient, whatever, for your whole life. And if you don't provide that, you failed. You did not honor your father and mother. So what he's asking is, let me fulfill the fifth commandment. Let me continue to be perceived as righteous to myself and to the community at large. And in that time, if you're within the week of death, that eldest son would not be like walking around talking with people. There'd be like a week-long mourning period. So this isn't like he literally just died. I've got to go figure this thing out, and then I'll come right back. It's one of two things. It's either his father already died, and they already did the initial burial, and then they have to wait about a year for the body to decompose, and then there's this second and final burial of the bones in the wall of the tomb. So, so he might be saying, he already died, and I have to go back and wait for the second burial and, and provide the full burial for my father, and then I'll come, and then I'm down. Or his father has not died yet, but is in, like, like in the process of dying. So uh, 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 let me go back and wait for my father to die and provide burial. So this isn't like, give me five minutes, I'll be right back. This is like maybe a year or, or maybe even more. Let me, let me go handle this thing. And it is a question of righteousness. It is, atta- it is again, an attachment. It is, an, again, a, an attachment to a, a culturally localized, perceived sense of what it means to be right, to be good. And when you attach yourself to that thing, when you, when you decide to define yourself, your identity, your worth, your value on those terms, what it promises you back, if you give it your full allegiance, is worthiness and uh, honor and perception and reputation, all of these things. They, that, that, that perceived sense of righteousness derives for you meaning. And that third interaction is the one about family. 
Let me go say goodbye to my family, please. Just give me some time to bring closure and love and, and maintain and, and, and preserve all of those relationships with my family. And, and if you attach yourself to that, that idea of like nuclear and, and, and bonded kin family and throw your allegiance at that, the promise is to deliver you support and belonging and this little taste of unconditional love. When every other relationship in your life is somehow conditioned, these relationships are the one that are supposed to be not conditioned on my behavior, my performance, that like we're somehow bound together in love. Here's the problem, here's the problem. Anything that you attach your life to for core meaning, and you derive for yourself meaning and life, you're trying to create for yourself a sense of life, and then when these things, you think they're going to do that, and maybe they do it a little bit, you feel it a little bit, and then you throw your loyalty and allegiance at them. Guys, that's the fundamental understanding of idolatry. That's what an idol is. Something not God, something not Jesus, that you think is going to provide for you life and meaning and wholeness and value and worth, and you think it's going to provide you with that, and then maybe it gives you like a little bit of smidgen, tricks you into thinking it's going to do that, and then you give it loyalty and allegiance. Yes, listen, yes, I am saying that, that household, family, uh, uh, success, career, a perceived sense of righteousness even, a reputation, all of it, can be idols. It's not just, it's not just like a little, a little golden duck that you put on your mantle and you bring the kids in every single night and you, you say prayers to the duck or whatever. This is like subversive uh, idolatry that happened then and it happens now. And what happens is the more you attach these things to your life, the more you derive meaning from all these things in your life, you become entangled. Your life becomes entangled with idols. We want to bring our dead bodies to life. We, we, feel, we, we know, we, we experience this lack of meaning, this, this death in our members. And we want to bring our bodies to life. And the way that we try to do that is to find these attachments. It reminded me a little bit of a string puppet. And I have to tell you, this is the most underground thing I've ever done. Uh, because puppets are really expensive. So this morning I made a string puppet out of duct tape. Um, it is literally, you guys know what I mean by underground, right? Like you got things in your house that you look at and you said, that's so underground, or things in your car that are like, that's really underground. This is the most underground thing I've ever done, I'm telling you. <laughs> Nobody had one. I thought for sure Jeremy had one. He didn't. Uh, and... I just made one out of duct tape. It's kind of reminded me, when I was just thinking about it, it kind of reminded me of a string puppet. And this is just going to be an object lesson. Please do not get too distracted by this. I understand this is very distracting, but please just stick with me. Sis, this, this, these, and even, even if you think about the story of Pinocchio, I mean, it's just like these puppets that are these inanimate objects. They're, they have no life in them. They have no meaning in them. They have no purpose in them. But all of a sudden, if you just attach these, these strings, you can give them the form of life. You can, you, can, you can start to maybe believe that there's life there. 
Every single one of these attachments that we, that we put on our life, that we commit ourselves to, a household, a family, a, a job, a marriage, and kids, and dreams, and aspirations, and, and money, and whatever, it's like, like all of a sudden our, the deadness of our existence starts to trick us into thinking, oh, this is, this is life. We, we, we have life now because of these attachments, this entanglement that we find ourselves in. Each string is like a little idol. And then that, that existence of idolatry kind of carries us. And in the end, all three of these interactions are, in, are examples. Listen, listen to me. All three of these interactions are examples of people trying to say yes to Jesus within the confines of their own preset attachments trying to say yes to Jesus while still entangled to their idols. Just trying to add Jesus as just another string. And just, just intermingle with all the other owners of my life. Just be another string that operates in, in coexistence with all these other stakeholders and rulers that I submit myself to, that I'm loyal to. It's just trying to add Jesus as another attachment. Yes, I, I already know. I already know I'm going to have a big, a big household later in life. I know I have the right. I have the right to a house. And now I say yes to Jesus, and immediately he, 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 he becomes the one who provides for me that house. He becomes the one who, who orchestrates you know, that, that, that house. He's the one who, who consults me on the interior decorating of that house. I go to Target, and I get the, go to the knickknacks aisle, and I find all the, the stencil. Me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, 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 and Jesus just becomes like, like it, but, but that's the thing. He, 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 he's interpreted along the way. We're trying to follow him, but we never once consider the question. Does he even want me to have one? We never go all the way back to those rights that we hold, those assumed entanglements that we have in common, say, all the way back, all the way back, I have no rights. What would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? Yeah, I'm still a righteous and moral person, but now I get the additional stamp of approval from Jesus in the Christian community. At large, confirming that reality of my goodness and my righteousness, and then helping me over time to become more and more good. Yes, I'm, I'm already going to have a forever close-knit family, but now Jesus is just going to add spiritual meaning and purpose to that, and he'll even guilt all my kids into staying at home in their adult lives with all their grandkids. We have more of these, don't we? We have more of these things that we assume we have a right to, and we never question Yes, of course I'm going to get married, obviously. It's the apex of human society. And, and then the moment you say yes to Jesus, it's always like, okay, now Jesus is going to help me discern that person, help me find that person, bring me that person, help me be married better, help me be a better spouse, all that stuff. But we never roll all the way back to say, do you even want that for me? Yes, of course I'm going to have kids. I already know their names. I have a Pinterest board for each one. And, and, and now Jesus gets to influence how I parent them and how I interpret their meaning and, and how they develop over time. Yes, of course I'm going to be successful and rich, but now I get to count that success as a blessing from Jesus, a mark of his favor on me. And I get to use a little bit of portion of it to help him because he needs me. Guys, this is idolatry. All of these rights that we think we have, 
that are like basic to like being who you are, all of these rights, these entitlements that you hold on to, and you bring into life with Jesus as assumptions, and you're just entangled with them, and you just add him to it, all of your little idols, and you just add him to it. We never surrender those things to Jesus sometimes. Every sharp confrontation of Jesus on our idols is simultaneously a gracious invitation to something more. I'm just, the more you, the more you just interact with the Gospels, you start to, over time, and if you just, just, just maybe in the future, this might help you. Every, the, the, the harder Jesus gets, the sharper he is, the more confrontational word he delivers. Actually, within it is some of the heights of his grace, some of the heights of his love. And within it is not a condemnation, but an invitation. Come out of that. Full of grace. I was just thinking this week about Luke 19, and a lot of you know this story, the rich young ruler, where uh, the, the rich young ruler, Jesus is kind of in a crowd, and he's having, doing some ministry and dialogue, and this rich young ruler approaches him in Luke 19, and he says, he says teacher, teacher, tell me what I must do to inherit eternal life. Tell me what I've got to do to be saved. And then he, and then he, and before Jesus can really answer, I mean, he's kind of like, listen, before we get too far into this, um, I, I've obeyed this command, and I do this thing. I'm pretty good on this one. Uh, I'm crushing it at this one. Nailed it. Um, and I'm pretty much, I'm, I'm mostly good. I'm mostly good. So what can I do? And you kind of discover he's not really actually asking. He's really just looking for confirmation that he already is good, like he's already fine. And Jesus could have said, I mean, he could have said a hundred things, right? I mean, there's so many things he could have said in this conversation. And he looks at the guy and he says, yeah, you've got one thing. There's one thing left. You have to sell everything you have and give to the poor and then come and follow me. And the guy, the guy does not, he doesn't disagree. He doesn't get into an argument. He walks away sad. Almost like he can see it. And, so, and immediately after that, Jesus kind of digresses with his disciples, just talks about like how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And yes, that story is about wealth and riches, and it is about the poor, and it is about generosity, but guys, what, what, that, what that message is really about is idolatry. It, I mean, anything else he would have told the guy, which would have been true, wouldn't have been his core idol. It's almost like this guy came to Jesus, and Jesus knew the one thing that he could ask this guy that would be the most difficult thing to say, because this was the attachment of this guy's life, wealth and resources. There's one thing, there's one thing. In one way, you could say it, sell everything you have to get and give to the poor. In another way, you could say it, there's one thing. I do not coexist with idols. Rid yourself of this ruler. And the guy doesn't disagree. I actually think he sees it. He's like, yeah. And he can't do it. He just, he just, he can't overcome that thing. It looks like a sharp confrontation, but actually it was this gracious invitation. Like you, you, you think you're rich and you think you want riches and, and, and you chase riches, but I'm telling you, you are forsaking true riches and you think giving up your current riches is a great risk. It's a huge risk for you to give that away. But I'm telling you, you're taking a worse risk. There's something more for you. And that little, that little ask, that little question to say, to say listen, 
give everything you have, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And, and him exposing that idol and, and to invite him to relinquish that idol. If that guy would have said, would have said yes, I'm all in. Like Zacchaeus, if he would have said, yes, I'm in. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out from underneath the rule of that idol. It's just like Jesus with that invitation is just cutting a little, a little entanglement, a little attachment, separating us from the bondage of that idolatry. But the problem is, is when you get the confrontation, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It feels like that life is bondage. What? What are you talking about? When really, the thing that we exist in, the thing, the thing that we're like craving, that we think is going to deliver us meaning, it's not going to deliver that. That's bondage. Our idols put us in bondage. Think about that first, that first interaction in the house, uh, on, on the household. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, good, good, good. That's great. This is awesome. Will you follow me to nowhere? Will you follow me into homelessness? What does this guy say? We don't even know. You know what a household is trying to promise you? We talked about it earlier. It's a sense of home. I read two books this week um, on home, the idea of home. One of them was by uh, a woman named Jen Pollock. I, I, I liked hers a lot more. Um, and I was just gripped by this one quote. I'm just going to say it twice. Home represents humanity's most visceral ache and our oldest desire. Home represents humanity's most visceral ache and our oldest desire. It is as if we long for something that we've never actually tasted that we've never actually experienced before. She, she actually posits that that homesickness emerges from the garden, from this like separation from God, from this reconciliation that we, that, that, that we long for with God, this community, this oneness with God that we don't have and we long for. And Frederick Buechner would actually agree. He would say, to be human is to long for home. But the kingdom of God is where we belong. It is our home, and whether we realize it or not, I think we are all homesick for it, the kingdom of God. You know, Jamie and I, we, uh, and little Landon, I think they left because Landon was getting saucy. Um, they, we, we moved here in September, and before we moved here, we were looking for a house. We were trying to find a house to, to buy. Um, but from five states away, it was extremely difficult, and we just thought, eh, we'll just deal with it when we get there. So we moved into a, we're renting a little small house on Ebor Street, and uh, um, uh, and our it's been a it's been a good house. It's had some complications, but we we like our little house. And uh, but we we want to host people. We like having space to like have a big dinners, and we like being able to like have out of town guests coming like all the time and staying with us. And we like being like crazy hospitable. We like just having like. Space to for, for life and parties and community and all this stuff and this this house is just really small and so we we we're while at the one in one sense being very grateful to have a house to move into in the first place we've still been looking we've still been looking for something to move into long term and um, please 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 don't put this online please don't put this online um, but my wife is pregnant we just found this out thank you little clap here and there. Um, Please, internet silence. Okay, so, um, so now it's kind of like, 
now we really want to get like we really want to get a house. We want to get some bedrooms. So we're, we're our family's like growing and everything. And so we're we're we've been looking for a house for about a year. But I don't know if you know, the Tampa housing market is a little bit insane. Uh, it's like ridiculous. It's absurd, totally absurd. And we've probably gone running around looking for like I, I don't. We've probably gone to look at like sixty houses in the last year or something like that. But. I don't, we don't, you know, underground staff don't make a lot of money, and so, um, and, and the housing market is just like exploding, and it, it, it's just been very difficult, and so we, we're still looking, we're still looking, and it kind of got to this place where we just felt like we had a conversation on the couch, and we were just like, what, how is this going to work? <laughs> how is this going to work? And, I mean, you, you already, probably already know, you know what's creeping behind that conversation? We're just sitting there like... God's going to provide. He's definitely going to provide. Like, we just have to keep trusting him. But built into the whole conversation is an assumption that we have the right to a house. Of course he's going to give us something. You know, we just got to wait. We just got to wait for him to provide. Our family's just growing a little bit. He knows our needs, all this kind of stuff. But built into it is the assumed right, the holding on to the right, that we have to have a house. We should have a house. And built into that is this just assumption of home. This, like, this is what it means to like, make a home here. This is what it means for us to discover home here, to discover stability and comfort, security, have a little sanctuary or whatever, and be able to, to be hospitable and to invite people in. And that's part of what it means to be home and to create memories and to, to have home. So we too, we have this little like, attachment, this little assumption that we brought into our lives. And I'm telling you, this week, uh, uh, I kind of, it was my birthday on Wednesday, and I came in, uh, and I don't, I don't have my birthday published anywhere. I keep it off of Facebook. I don't want anybody to know when it's my birthday. And somehow, everybody on staff knew it was my birthday. And I don't know how they found this out. <laughs> and, uh, and I came, we have a staff meeting on Wednesday morning, and I walk into the staff meeting at 10 o'clock, and there's just like La Segunda Bakery stuff like all over the table, and they've got, they've got cafe con leche, which is like one of my favorite things. And they've got like, somebody made diced oranges to counteract the sugar. Like I think you just eat one, and then you eat something healthy, and it's equal. I think that's how that works. It's science. And I just, and then, you know, it was like so, I just walked in, and it was just like so unbelievably kind and caring and I was just like you know I was like a little bit angry that people found out it was my birthday but then I was like very grateful that they did this for me and I didn't open in the time but they gave me this card and I didn't open it when I was like sitting there and I went home and I was sitting in my room and I opened this card and every single person not just the staff every single person who's like around the hub had just signed this card and just said little things and I was just sitting like in my room on the bed and I was just like reading this card and I just felt like, who, who needs a house to be home? What, what, what made us believe somehow that, that, we couldn't cre- that we couldn't discover that God would not graciously deliver to us home regardless of a house? And just we almost just felt like, I mean, we're going to keep looking or whatever, but we just felt like this release of like, who cares, really? Because we're in the community of saints. We're in this amazing community of missionaries, and, and we're under the leadership of Christ Jesus. And, and what in the end does it mean to be home except to, to exist in the throes of the kingdom of God? To exist home. See, under that understanding of home, if you see home as like a house and like everything that happens in a house, 
yeah, sure, Jesus was like homeless and he lived homeless, but if you have this understanding of home that's like the, 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 the quenching of all that we've longed for in, in the kingdom of God, was Jesus ever actually homeless? I think it's possible to have a household your whole life and to never be home. And I think it's possible to never have a house, but to always discover home. I was just remembering this line from the first week that we started in this series, this who is Jesus kind of exploration. Whoever wants to keep their home will lose it. But whoever lets go of their right to a sense of home, for me and for my sake, you will save it. You will have it. You will inherit it. Think about that third interaction about family. That somehow you're... you're deference to family when Jesus calls your life beckons you to him beckons you to be a missionary in his kingdom and you say just wait just wait a second just be second for a moment to this other concern just be second to this other concern that somehow your deference to your family disqualifies you from service in that kingdom remember what a family is trying to promise you that potential idol in your life is trying to promise you support and belonging and unconditional love But somehow, as is the case with all idols, that attachment can't deliver what it's promising you. And Jesus can. The real deliverable goods of the family come to us through the family of God. And do you see the family of God as your real, actual family? I mean, I think this was like one of the core things I was wrestling this week is there's so many things that we say to each other, like we're family in the Lord, but we, I, we actually have no concern for that to be real in actual life. Or like people you don't really enjoy, saying to them, We're, I love you in the Lord, but you don't love them at all or like them or want to attempt to. I love you in the Lord, though. And this, this propensity sometimes for us to interact with each other and to just kind of believe in the peripheral that we're, we're a family. We're, 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 we're under the fatherhood of God and we're brothers and sisters in the family of Christ Jesus. But at the same time, I don't actually want to treat you like family at all in any way, shape, or form. But in the Lord, we're family. I'm with you. You're with me. We're good. Uh, last fall, I did a, I did a wedding um, for two, a couple up in Carbondale. Their names are Pada and Mary. The guy's name is Pada. P-A-D-A. That's not how you spell it. That's how it is in my phone. But it's Pata and Mary. Pata and Mary. And when I, I you know, it, it was just like maybe a month before I was moving here. And uh, we did their premarital counseling. And then we, we, we did their wedding. And I had this little professional, like, folder. Or what, what do you call these things? You know, that, that hold all your notes. Let's say professional folder. And it's like padded and it's black and it's sleek and it makes me look professional or whatever. And so, and, and I, I would always preach out of that thing and then I would always, like, have my wedding notes in that thing when I would do weddings. And uh, uh, so I, I did their wedding. I had my little professional uh, folder thing. And then, I, and then I had them sign all their documents and all, everything and pack it all up to, 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 for, to make it legal or whatever. And then I put that, all that all that information and everything in this little professional folder. Um, And then we went home and it was a great wedding. It was awesome. And we were in the middle of packing and moving. And so, um, you know, everything's packing up in boxes. And then we moved down here a month later. We got here in October, uh, September. And then, uh, you know, I started unpacking in my office uh, very slowly over time. And 
uh, we, we, did, we had something going on, and Brian actually gave me a new little folder thing, a, a brown one. It actually looked cool. and had my initials on it, and I was like, oh, this is amazing. This is my new professional preaching folder. So that black folder just got stored away for a long time, and at the end of February, I was unpacking a few boxes that never got unpacked, and I found this little folder thing, and I thought, oh, how interesting. It's about seven, eight months, actually, after, after, uh, uh, since I'd seen this thing, and I pop it open, and in there is all of their information that I never sent in. You feel it? You feel it? So I'm like, these, these folks ain't married. They just, they're just sinners cohabitating, coexisting with each other. It's my fault. I did this to them. It's terrible. And I mean, I read the thing, like every word of this thing, and it says like you have to send this thing within 14 days. Like the county, the county clerk's office has to have this thing in 14 days. And so I'm like freaking out, and I go and I on Google and I find the number for the, the county clerk's office, and I call them. And this this lady with a, it, it was kind of in like south, uh, uh, the county that we had it in was like southeast Missouri, which is very very country. And this this woman uh, picks up the phone. She's got a very strong accent. Her name is Susanna, which was like felt like a very very um, county clerk like name or whatever so I'm, I'm, she's like she's like this is Susanna and I just like started talking to her and I and I explained the situation and she was like oh honey oh honey oh honey this isn't good and I told her is there something we can do like is there something we can do and she said we have a form that lets you that you can send in to apply for an extension but you only get it's only like a month extension and you're like six months out and I'm like I'm like, Susie, Susie, come on. And, and she's like, she's like, give, I'm like, give me something, help me. And she's like, listen, if you fill out that form and then you write a letter, like on some kind of letterhead, uh, uh, and, you know, for, because she thinks I'm like a, a pastor of like a major uh, facility that has letterhead. I had to make letterhead to do this. <laughs> so, so I write this letter and I explain the situation. I'm like, so sorry about this. And then I send it in and I have to wait three or four days for her to get it. And then I call her and I'm like, did you get it? She's like, I got it. And I was like, what, are, are we good? Are we done? And she's like, no, I don't think this is going to work. And I was like, Susie, come on, like, help me out. And she, she says, you have to write a check for like a, um, a late fee or something like that. And it was actually pretty expensive. And I was like, listen, I don't have necessarily money, uh, but if we could agree on a different currency or something like that. And she, she ends up like, we talked on the phone like two or three times. She was going to supervisors because it wasn't really her call. They waive the fee and they eventually just accept it. And they say, okay, that's fine. Just forget it. We're good. It's good. And, and, and I decided, I don't know if this is good or bad, but I decided I'm never going to tell Pat and Mary this. <laughs> like ever. I will never tell Pat and Mary this. So this last weekend, I'm up there in a wedding and at the reception, I'm sitting at a table with four couples and Pat and Mary is sitting at that table. And I'm just kind of like, it won't come up. It certainly won't come up. And somebody asked them, like, it's your first year of marriage. How are things going? And they're like, oh, some things are good. And then eventually at the end of their answer, they were like, you know, it was like really frustrating to try to get Mary's documents renewed, like to get the new, you know, passport and the new ID and all this kind of stuff. They're like, that was really frustrating. Such a terrible process. They kept trying to say we weren't married. <laughs> and, and I'm just sitting there like, how interesting, how interesting. <laughs> and so eventually, I, I, just t I just said, like, in the middle of this whole table of people, I just said, I, I'm so sorry. I literally just sent in your information, like, two months ago. Like, 
And they were, they were like, oh, so this explains a lot. <laughs> this explains a lot. We literally weren't married for some time. And, uh, and so, yeah, I told them. I was like, yeah, you weren't really married. You weren't really married. And Pata looks at me like so serious. I mean, they were joking around the whole time. And he just, this is just kind of how Pata is. He just looked at me and he just said, uh, bro, we were married. Dude, we were married. It's okay. We were married. And I mean, he didn't like go all glossy into it. He just looked at me. He said, it doesn't matter. We were married. It doesn't matter what the state says. It doesn't matter what the federal government says. It doesn't matter if we have a piece of paper or not. We sat in a room in front of witnesses under the authority of Christ Jesus. We made covenantal vows with one another. We exchanged rings. We're married. And I just felt like that strength of belief to say what God says is true of my relationship with you and with you, it's true. It doesn't matter what, what, what anybody else says. It doesn't, matter what, it doesn't matter whatever clarification needs to be had. It's like, this is true. This is just true. All that's formality. And I just think if we're going to say, listen, if we're going to say, that, that nuclear family relationships and like tight-knit, lifelong family relationships and this dream of like being with your core family like forever, if we're going to say, if we're going to look at each other and say, that has the potential to be an idol, which it does, then at the same time, we have to say that the people of God actually have to function like a family. Because that's how God actually designs that. He says, what does he say? He said, if you have to leave mother, brother, sister, father, anything for me and for my sake, I will pay it back a hundredfold in this life and in the next. So are, are we like receiving that? Are we stepping into that and saying, look, it does not matter. It does not matter what, what, what our DNA is. It doesn't matter common last name. I'm telling you, we're family. This is true of you and me. The community of saints can actually become more potent, more transformational, and more glorifying than simple shared name or a shared household could ever accomplish. And whoever wants to keep their family hold on to it for a whole life, you lose it. But whoever loses their right, their right to their family, you'll save it. And those attachments, they all promise you life. They all promise you meaning, but they can't deliver any of it. And this is one of those texts, one of those moments where Jesus subtly discloses his own self-understanding. You see, if we were not just to ask you or to ask me, but if we were to ask Jesus, who do you say that you are? Not us, not somebody else. Who do you say that you are? I think this is one of those moments, if we could submit to it, if we could submit to it, where he has a subtle answer, that he is the one who assumes authority over the way you understand and discover home. He is the one who assumes authority over the way you understand and discover righteousness. He is the one who assumes authority over the way you understand and discover uh, the, the family. He is the one who, 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 who takes a, assumes authority over the way that you understand and discover life itself, all of it. His self-understanding is not that of merely a carpenter or a teacher or a moralist or a zealot or a prophet or even just a messiah, but a new king of an invading kingdom, the Lord of lords over a new creation and all of its inhabitants. And he will not coexist 
with any idol. He will not. He will not share that throne in your life with other owners. Yes, if you follow Jesus, you give up your rights. You relinquish your rights over your household, your sense of righteousness, your nuclear family, and your self-made dreams. But if you turn away from Jesus, you give up an eternal home, a true righteousness, an everlasting family, and kingdom dreams. But the bottom line of the whole text is that you cannot retain ownership and control of your perceived rights and at the same time follow Jesus. Is Jesus enough for you? Are you satisfied with him alone? And the loss of these other things, the loss of perceived security and comfort and aspirations and dreams and relationships, the loss of those things pale in comparison to the loss of him. The worship team would come up. You see, by... by ending each of these interactions. Each, each of these interactions is the same, you see. Lord, Lord, we'll do this. Am I really? Lord, Lord, we'll do this. Am I really? You call me Lord, but am I really? Am I really your Lord? And by not actually including their response, either verbally or even their action afterwards, in any of these interactions, Luke exposes that the the primary issue going on, the the primary audience of this, isn't necessarily each of those people. In the end, it doesn't actually matter how each of them responded or, 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 or what each of them thought or how each of them lived afterwards. In the end, he leaves each one of them open-ended. He doesn't actually include their response because the, the audience that must answer this question is not just them, it's you. It is every audience that must answer this question. Yes, you say I'm Lord with your lips, but what about the crafting of your whole life? What about the shape of your life, the existence of your allegiances? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Have you been trying to fit Jesus in with all of your other attachments? I know I did. And one by one, one by one, he just came snipping. He just came confronting all of my entangled idols. I remember when I first uh, started following Jesus right before college, I made the decision, I made the decision when I was going to college that I was going to follow Jesus, I I was going to be like totally surrendered to his leadership, but I still wanted to live with my best friends since like elementary school. And these were the guys, I hung out with these guys every single day, sun up, sun down, all the way through high school, and we were like, they were my family. My family wasn't really like in high school, like really my family. These guys, this community was my family. And we made every horrible decision that that, that one of us could make, we all made together. And every life habit that, that you could create that would be destructive, we all took them on together. And when I went to college, I just felt like, yeah, I'm surrendered to Jesus, I'm going to try to follow Jesus, but I have a right to these relationships. I can't be without these relationships. I don't know who I am, actually, apart from these relationships. So they're coming too. They're coming too. And for two years, I lived with those guys. And for two years, 
my life was like a mess, a wreck of like trying to follow Jesus and then like, like, like just totally falling apart. She said no real Christian community in my life. And it was as if it was like, it was like Jesus beckoning my life and me saying, let me say bye to my family first. Let me, let me just, let me have some time with them. And eventually we'll do this thing. Eventually we'll do this thing. After college, we'll do this thing. Just let me preserve this family that I have that I don't know who I am without. And I was just put my hand to the plow and I just kept looking back, constant looking back. It came to the end of my sophomore year and I just felt this like, I just felt this strong urge to move in with these, these, these leaders in this campus ministry. And to separate specifically from this one guy is like my best friend my whole life. And I just knew the moment we weren't living together, that relationship was just going to be like irreparably broken. And I was just going to lose that. This best friend, I mean, he's in my wedding best friend since like third, fourth grade. And suffering over that, suffering over that, suffering over that. And eventually just like this, and it's a strong confrontation from Jesus. He's saying, you have to leave. You have to break this. It's hurting you. And eventually moving out and moving away from him. And look, look, we, we, we still know each other. We're still, we're still friends. I'm not like totally extracted from his life. But, but, but he's not my family. I, we barely talk anymore. And I thought, I was like certain. God, there is no relationship that will ever reach like the, the capacity that this one was at, ever. Like, Every relationship I have is going to pale in comparison to this one that I had, this, this friend, this best friend that I had. And just like he promised, you, if you have to give up uh, brother, sister, mother, friend, anything like that, if you have to give them up for me, for my sake, for the mission of Christ Jesus, I will return to them, them to you a hundredfold in this life and in the next. And I'm telling you, I have a hundred of those friends, and each one of those relationships is a hundred times more deep than that one ever was. I had to change my major because I had to cut free from this idol in my life of success and money. I'm a three on the Enneagram. I want to achieve. I'm like, I'm totally obsessed with like, yeah, there's some threes in the room. I was like, I just wanted to, to, to be as successful as possible. And I was, I was a mechanical engineer and my sophomore year, I got into undergraduate research and I, 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 I invented a, a material called intermetallic bonded diamond. And it's, it's like this little, uh, uh, you use it in like uh, dr drill bits for coal mining and deep oil drilling. It saves companies a whole bunch of money because it outperforms everything else. And then I, my junior year, I went and I lived in Germany for four months and I invented the first ever free machining alloy of titanium, TI-83, uh, to be used in like, like building rocket ships and everything a lot faster than they ever could be made before. And I came back and I had this, my junior year, I had a job offer with this company called U.S. Synthetic, and they were basically saying, we'll pay you like six figures, and we'll give you like a free master's degree, and literally the culmination of everything that I ever wanted was sitting right in front of me, and then Jesus called me into ministry. What a great moment. What an amazing time, Jesus. I got back, I was back in town for like a month. I had that job offer sitting with me for like two weeks and I was sitting at this weird student leadership conference, it doesn't matter, and I was sitting at a table and I was staring at this centerpiece in the middle of this table. It had three lilies in it and it was in this cylinder glass vase and everything, I don't even know what, everything just like kind of went fuzzy and I just had this kind of like, I don't know, like this, this, this moment with Jesus where he just, sitting at this table, eight o'clock on a Friday night, he just said, give me your whole life all of your life for the mission of my kingdom. I want it all. 
And just sitting at this table, I was just like, um, cool, 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 good, 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 good. Um, how about, and this is what, like, we had this back and forth dialogue. It's like, what if I get my degree, and what if I work for five years, and then I'll do that? I'll just bank up a savings. I won't have to fundraise. That's for the birds. I'll just do this engineering job for five years, and then I'll go do that. And, and it was literally like, no, nope. If you do that, I, I can't use you. You leave. You're gone. And I said, okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, we won't do that job. It's fine. What if I finish my engineering degree? I let these guys down really nice and easy so that I kind of maintain relationships so that if this ministry thing doesn't work out, then I have this excellent fallback plan, this really cool safety net, engineering degree, good connections or whatever. Nope. No, no, no. No safety net because you'll leave. You won't do this. You won't do this. And some of you think, like I've told you many times, none of you know this about me. I've told you many times, my bachelor's degree was in math theory, math philosophy. And you guys actually think I liked that junk. I didn't. I hated that. I had to change my degree to a, to a degree that would give me no job opportunity. That's what that is, math philosophy. <laughs> Because I, what was happening is like this interaction, like this success, this is an idol in your life. It, it's got ownership over you, and I will not coexist with it. You have to burn that bridge. And if you leave a little, a little safety net, your little engineering degree or whatever, the moment that this thing gets hard, that idol is going to come creeping back and saying, this isn't what it was cut out to be, was it? I told you. There's something better. And guys, I've had some really, really hard seasons in ministry. And, and if I would have kept that engineering degree, if I would have like done that job for like one year, six months, I would have left. I'm telling you. But J Jesus had to come in and just rip that idol out of my life. Totally just say, be free. Be free from that. Get out of that entanglement. You can't just like try to be pastoral with your idols. Like, I'll just leave it over here. I'll just give it a smaller seat in my life, just a little bit of one, a little bit of influence over me. He will not coexist with any other leader, ruler, owner in your life. None. And that's good for you. I'm so grateful to Jesus that he didn't coexist with my idols, that he confronted every single one of them because I never would have known just how satisfying he is alone. Are you still holding on to your attachments? Are you still loyal? Are you still pledging your allegiance to those old idols, those old dreams, those old desires? Put them to death today. Cut them, cut them free today. Be liberated from those today. And receive the blessed, satisfying sufficiency of Jesus today. He is Lord. And He is satisfying. More, more, more than enough. More than enough alone. And on the night he was betrayed in the room with those disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you to purchase you from these entanglements and in the death of his body to put to death every other idol. And when you eat it, 
You eat it in remembrance of him. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. So this morning, when you're ready to come and to receive Jesus as Lord and to receive the death and resurrection of his body and at the same time to put to death your idols. When you're ready, come. The elements given for you.